The reading this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. It is true, and it's given out of his love. You may be seated. everybody. It's so good to be here with you all. Um, let me get my timer ready to time. Okay. Well, some sermons start off strong and then they kind of taper off and it's clear that the pastor did not spend as much time on the end of the sermon as he did on the beginning of it. I'm going to start off really weak and get better, hopefully. We'll see how that goes. So the way I'm going to start off weak is by, well, how else would you start it off? By singing a children's song to you or a little snippet of it. And if you know it, I just want to encourage you to sing along with me. It's really good. Okay, it goes like this. <clears throat> the more we get together, 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 the more we get together, the happier we'll be. Because your friends are my friends and my friends are your friends. The more we get together, the happier we'll be. Hey, excellent. Good job. The problem is that song is a pack of lies. <laughs> See, my kids and I and my wife would listen to that song in our minivans. We would be taking these long road trips because it happened to be on the CD that we would be listening to. And every time it came on, it turned our minivan into like this torture chamber on wheels. You see, I, I have to, full disclosure here, I have to admit, I am a certified introvert. So for me, the idea of togetherness and happiness do not exactly go together. But even for you strange creatures known as extroverts, you people who actually recharge around other people, I have to wonder, would you really agree that togetherness and happiness necessarily go together? See, relationships are a mixed bag. Relationships can be a great source of happiness and contentment and joy. But on the other hand, relationships can be our greatest cause of pain and sorrow. They're a great source of struggle. A couple years ago, Time Magazine ran a cover story called How to Stay Married. And the opening line of that article said, there's a reason fairy tales always end in marriage. It's because nobody wants to see what comes after. 
You don't have to be married, though, to know that relationships are hard. And why is that? Because we live in a broken world, and there's no place in our lives where that brokenness comes to the surface than in our relationships. So the question is, what do we do about our relationships in a broken world? Do we just do as the song suggests and just kind of ignore that brokenness and say, hey, let's just all come together so we can be happy? Or do we take an opposite approach and do we just kind of wave the white flag of surrender to our brokenness and say, I'm sorry, these certain relationships in my life are too painful, so I just need to stay away. I need to just keep my distance. Well, the problem with that is you just can't live it out. You see, the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, if only it were all so simple If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and we could just separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. You get what he's saying there? If only we could round up all the evil people and just put them over there. But then Scholzenitsyn continues and he says, but the line dividing good and evil cuts right through the heart of every human being. The Bible says that no one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. See, the problem is that sin follows me everywhere I go. It's like a shadow I cannot escape. It's like poison running through my veins. The common denominator in all of my bad relationships is me. So what do we do then? In a broken world with broken relationships, where do we turn to for hope? And the answer is, in a word, reconciliation. Reconciliation is quite simply the healing of a broken relationship. Reconciliation occurs when enemies become friends and come back together. And reconciliation runs throughout the pages of this book. This book is full of broken relationships. Whoever was here for the book of Judges that we just did, you know that brokenness runs throughout the cover, from cover to cover in this book. It is everywhere, and it infiltrates our own lives as well as we live here in the 21st century. So what are we going to do about it. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about it. And the text this morning is that text that we just read up on the screen from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I would encourage you to turn there if you happen to have your Bible with you or you can look on the table Bibles. Um, That is on page 966 if you have the table Bible this morning. Now, we have some pictures of Corinth that I wanna put up here on the screen. And I show you those pictures this morning just so you can see that this is a real city full of real people who had real relationships and because they were real, they had real brokenness involved in them. The church in Corinth had a lot of dysfunction going on. The church in Corinth was full of division and strife and the Apostle Paul cared deeply about the people in Corinth who were a part of that church. And because he cared so deeply, he got heavily involved in trying to resolve and reconcile the conflict. And in the course of doing that, as so often can happen, when you enter into the fray of somebody else's conflict, then you become part of the conflict as well. 
So you might say that the Apostle Paul and the Corinthian church, they had a history together. They had a history of unmet expectations where Paul had expectations for the church in Corinth where he wanted them to grow together, to stop being so worldly in their view of understanding and judging each other, and to instead take on the attitude and the likeness of Christ. The Corinthians, on the other hand, had an expectation for Paul to be more bold, to be more impressive in the way he carried himself in person, to be a more eloquent speaker, and Paul did not meet their expectations as well. So Paul is writing to them about reconciliation. And see, the the sermon this morning could easily be applied to a lot of different areas of our lives. It's kind of ironic that this is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, where we look back and celebrate that, because racial reconciliation is a huge deal in our culture. But this morning, we're narrowing the focus to reconciliation within the church. As Colbert just explained, we want to grow together this year. We want to grow as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ. But the problem with that is as we grow closer we grow more likely to have conflict in our relationships. In the words of a book called Ministry Mantras, it says, we will let you down. If we're close enough to help you, we're close enough to hurt you. And that's just the reality that we face as we seek to grow as a body of followers this year. If we're close enough to help each other, we are close enough to hurt each other. And so as we look at this passage, We are reading the words of somebody who had a lot of experience with reconciliation, somebody who himself knew exactly what it was like to have strife with other believers. And the problem with that is that it keeps us, it can keep us from growing and maturing in our faith when we have unresolved conflict among us. Another problem is that conflict in here that goes unresolved really harms our testimony out there on the other side of these walls. This is a core piece of what it means to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we turn and we look at the words that Paul writes, we need to realize that this is part of what it means to be a disciple. Before we get into it though, let's say a word of prayer. Father God, we come before you this morning and just ask that you would speak into our lives, speak into our hearts, God, Convict us and confront us where we need that to happen. But Lord, I pray, first and foremost, that that we would leave different, that we would be changed to be more like you so that we would walk out of the door different than we walked in. And we pray all of this by your grace and in your name. Amen. All right, well, the first thing we're going to look at this morning is verse 19. We're going to skip down into the middle of this passage and look at verse 19 because verse 19 contains a key for understanding this whole topic of reconciliation. And he says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their brokenness or our brokenness against us. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. You see, the first thing we need to see when we apply the gospel to our lives and when we apply the gospel to our broken relationships is that the history that we have with people in our lives, like Paul had a history with the Corinthians, we have a history with some people, a history of conflict. The first thing we need to see is that our history has a history behind it. 
the strife that you experience with somebody, the, the difficult personality that you perceive somebody to have, the, the issue, the betrayal that somebody has, has committed against you has a history behind it. And it goes all the way back to the opening pages of the scriptures. It goes all the way back to the first pages of Genesis when God creates a world that is very good and he creates humanity and the first humans are said to be naked and unashamed. And of course we think of that in a physical way, naked and unashamed, but what else, how else we can think about that is that it means that you are completely exposed but with nothing to hide. How wonderful, how marvelous would that be to be completely exposed but with nothing to hide. No shame, no secrets. There aren't any dark alleys of my past that I wish you would not know about. To be completely exposed. But then you go from that original state to the human rebellion against God. And immediately, as soon as God's presence is, is made known, it's, the text says that Adam and Eve could hear the footsteps of God in the cool of the morning walking in the garden, and immediately they go into hiding. They're no longer naked and unashamed. Now they have shame. And then when God confronts them, what does Adam do? Adam says, that woman who you made, she gave me the fruit and I ate of it. So now the relationship with God and the humans has been harmed, and the relationship between Adam and Eve has been harmed. They're blaming each other for what's going on. And see, this is the history behind our history with somebody. You have to understand that because of sin, that power that we cannot escape, the shadow that follows us wherever we go, because of that, all of our relationships are affected. The tendency that I think most of us have is to live our lives with these compartments where we have our compartmentalized relationship with God over here and we have our compartmentalized relationships with other people over here. And our thought is that we can keep those two totally separate from each other. But we see from Genesis 3 that sin affects them both. Our relationships with each other are harmed and our relationship with God is harmed. That's why the great commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. You see, sin is the original problem that affects all of our relationships. And I'm not telling you anything you don't already know at this point. You're aware of that, but we have to be reminded that the history that's going on between you and somebody else actually has an even bigger history behind it. And that history is a history of sin. And that is why this text says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. See, that is the good news. So the gospel teaches us that in the context of sin, that Christ has taken action, that God has taken action to heal that through reconciliation. God is reconciling the world to himself through Christ. And that is what the gospel teaches us as the backdrop for all of our relationships and our need for reconciliation. So as you think about the conflict you might have with somebody in this room, or you think about it with another brother or sister in Christ, you have to remember that it's more than just a difficult personality that you're dealing with. It's more than just a failure to meet your expectations or a failure to meet their expectations. 
There's something much bigger and deeper and more complicated going on behind the scenes. We have to keep that in mind. And when we do that, then we move on to the next thing that comes to mind in this passage when we deal with the whole issue of reconciliation. And that's that reconciliation from the gospel's perspective also changes the way I see other people. Look with me back up at verse 16. Paul says, well, we'll go up to 14, and, which I don't think is on the slide, but we'll get to 16 in just a second. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And now verse 16. From now on, therefore, because of the gospel that Paul has just said, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The gospel has completely transformed Paul's view of other people. If you remember Paul's own conversion story out of the book of Acts, for a period of time he is blinded. He cannot see anything. And then it, the text says that scales fell off of his eyes, and it's like Paul was seeing for the first time. Paul's view of everything, this whole world that he had lived in and the people around him had completely been transformed. And that is emblematic of what happens to us too when we come to Christ our view of the world, of the people around us, should be radically transformed. And one of the ways it's transformed in this, is in this area of how we think about other people, how we consider other people. And Paul says we don't regard people according to the flesh any longer. Back in 2007, the Washington Post conducted an experiment they wanted to ask the question, what would happen if we planted something extraordinary, something amazing in the middle of a very ordinary setting? So they took a musician, a world-class musician, a violinist named Joshua Bell. You might just have to take my word for that. He's a world-class musician. And they planted him in the middle of a very ordinary setting, which was a metro station in Washington, D.C., just a major transportation hub of the city. And they planted him there early in the morning when many, many commuters are coming in through that whole area. In fact, this corridor, you can see a video of this, where he's standing there performing with his violin. It's not just any violin. It's a violin that was, it's a Stradivarius that was built in sometime around 1714, I think, is the estimate. Worth an estimated $3.4 million from back in 2007. This isn't just any instrument. Joshua Bell sells out concert halls around the world on a routine basis. People will easily spend $100 for a ticket to go hear him, and that's, again, 2007 prices. So he opens up his case. He just looks like an average street performer and starts playing these classical songs. And 45 minutes go by, 1,000 people pass him by during that period. And of those 1,000 people, seven actually stop and take notice. Joshua Bell normally makes up to $1,000 a minute for his performances. At the end of this 45-minute session, he had $32 and some change that people had tossed his way. 
See, that's what happens when you take something extraordinary and plant it in just an ordinary setting in front of busy people who are on their way, going about their business with a lot on their minds that they're already preoccupied with. And that's what happens with you and me, too, in this world where sin is like that thing that skewers and it, it completely distorts our view of each other. We don't recognize who we are. We do not regard each other the way we ought to regard each other. We cannot appreciate the greatness that God has created us by giving us his image. And instead, we think of us, ourselves as just another person. And instead, we just snub and we exploit each other in the words of C.S. Lewis. We, we do not regard each other the way we ought to, but we regard each other from the flesh. And Paul is saying that when you truly understand the gospel, when you really get it, then you understand that the person you're dealing with, including the people you are in conflict with, are not just ordinary, run-of-the-mill human beings. They are God's creatures created in God's image. Think of the most difficult people in your life. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody in this room. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's, maybe it's somebody in another church setting, a believer who you used to know, but you don't really have contact with them anymore. All you know is that they are really difficult to get along with. Who is that person in your eyes? Is that person somebody who's been created in God's image? Or is that person just somebody who you would rather avoid at all costs? Paul is saying that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. She is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. See, when we really understand the gospel, then we need to understand that the people we are dealing with are of tremendous value, are of immense worth. So the gospel shows us that not only is there a history behind our history of conflict with somebody, the gospel also shows us that the people who we are dealing with, who are, we are in conflict with, are of tremendous value and worth. It changes, it transforms the way we regard each other. But there's another thing too. Not only does the gospel transform the way I regard other people, it transforms the way I regard myself. So let's keep reading after verse 17. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, that verse that we already looked at. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul says all of this, this new creation that he had just mentioned in verse 17, he says all of this is from God. That should well up a sense of gratitude within us as we realize that this new creation that we have become, that this immense value that we all have is from God, that the fact that God through Christ is reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us, that that is from God, that is God's doing, not something that we have achieved, not something that we have worked for or earned or deserved. That is all God's doing. And not only that, that's something to be so grateful for, but not only that, he has given us then this message of, or ministry of reconciliation. 
Verse 18, it's a message, it's a ministry. And then if you read down in verse 19, it is a message of reconciliation. It's something that we are to take with us as we go about. And we do that as ambassadors. An ambassador, of course, is somebody who represents a power. In Paul's day, you had Caesar in Rome, and you have ambassadors who would represent Caesar's power, and then ambassadors who would go back from a region to Rome to represent that region to Caesar. Those people had great value. They had tremendous power behind them because they spoke on behalf of Caesar. Paul's saying that you and I are ambassadors of reconciliation, that we carry the authority of the king of the universe with us as we go about our lives, that no longer should we be caught up in petty squabbles with other people, but that we should set those aside recognizing that God has called us to something far more significant, that we should be the people who come together and are able to see through the truth of our own tension and our own conflict, to understand that sin is behind it and that the solution is this reconciliation of the gospel, that we take that message and we use that to speak into other people's conflict, and we use that as well to speak into the own conflict that we have with, our, with other people. We carry that message with us. Of course, it's really easy to say, isn't it? It's really easy to talk about in terms like this. It's much more difficult in reality to carry out. And you might have the question, what does this really look like? How do we do this? You don't have to turn here in your Bible, but I'd like to go to Matthew 18. Because Matthew 18 speaks into this like maybe no other passage of what it actually looks like for us to live this out in the church. And in Matthew 18, you see a couple of passages that are back to back. One of those passages is kind of the the famous passage of how to deal with conflict in the church. And Jesus instructs the disciples, he says, if you have this conflict, if a brother or sister sins against you, first go to that person, just one-on-one, and talk to them. And if they won't listen to you, then take another brother or sister or two with you and confront them again. And if they still won't listen to you, then take it to the community, the community of believers. And then if they still won't listen, then treat them as an outsider. The text says like a Gentile or a tax collector. And in their minds, they would immediately know that's an outsider. That's not one of us. But the passage that comes right after that is the passage I want to hone in on. Peter goes up to Jesus and he says, how many times should I forgive a brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? If you know this passage, Jesus is like, Peter, you're, you're a little low. Not seven times. But some texts say 70 times seven. Other texts say 77 times. But the point is, Peter You just keep forgiving them. And then Jesus launches off into a story. And he says this, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And a servant is brought to this king 
who owed a ludicrous amount. This, this servant owed 10,000 talents. Other translations say 10,000 bags of gold. A single talent was 20 years of wages for a day laborer. A single talent is 20 years of wages for a day's laborer. And this fellow owes the king 10,000 of those. It's time to pay up. And the servant pleads with the king, please forgive me, I'll pay it back. Jesus, forgive me, forgive me. I... And the king says, I'm gonna sell everything you have, including you, including your family, your wife, your kids, and all that you own. But then as the servant begs the king, the king forgives him. The king just says, okay, I forgive you. And then that same servant goes out to a fellow servant. So catch what this is. This is like they're at the same level on the org chart, okay? One is not above each other. This is a fellow servant of the king. And that fellow servant owes this servant who had just been forgiven the 10,000 talents. He owes him some denarii, which a single denarius was one wage, one day labor's wage for a single day. And so you have these two completely different amounts. And as the servant who has been forgiven encounters this servant who owes him, he begins to choke him and says, pay what you owe. And the servant begs for mercy And this servant who has been forgiven simply will not do it. And then listen to how the story ends there. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. Should not you have had mercy on your servant, your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you? Paul ends this chapter, 2 Corinthians verse 5, by saying, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him or through him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road for us when it comes to reconciliation. We see that we have a history behind our history with somebody. We see that the gospel also transforms the way we see other people. We see that the gospel can also transform the way we see ourselves, that we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ministers of reconciliation. But the problem is we can't get over this thing called fairness. We can't get past this idea of our own concept of justice. And we want to say, you know, the other person that I'm in conflict with, they started it. The other person who I'm in conflict with, 
they are the greater offender in this case. Sure, I lashed out at them, but that's because they betrayed me. The person who walked out of my life completely did the wrong thing. Why should I go to them? They need to come to me. But you see, we're just like the servants in that story that Jesus told if we take that kind of an attitude. This is not about fairness. This is not about our own concept of justice. We have to let go of those things if reconciliation is truly going to take place. If we are going to be a community of people who are reconciled to God, then we have to be a community of people who are reconciling with each other in spite of what we think is fair. You see, you and I have been forgiven an amount that we cannot even begin to quantify. Just like you can't begin to quantify the amount of debt that that servant was forgiven. And yet we have such a hard time forgiving each other for something that is so far significant, far less significant in comparison. So this dilemma that we have is if we're, if we're going to hold on to the offense that was committed against us by another human being, then we need to let go of the grace that God has poured out into our lives because he has forgiven us an amount that is of no comparison to what any human being has committed against us. This is not a feel-good kind of sermon. This is not a feel-good kind of message This is actually the most difficult thing you can possibly do. But the good news that's woven in all of this is that Jesus Christ is both our model and our motivation and the one who gives us the power through his spirit to carry this out, to actually live this out, because this is impossible for anybody in this room to actually live this out. But what we can do is we can continue to rely on the Lord. We can grow together. And when conflict arises within us, we can come back to this word and be reminded of the fact that we have been forgiven, that God has reconciled himself to us through Jesus Christ. And that that has such power in it that our own conflict, our own need for reconciliation can actually take place as we lean into the gospel. That is the good news in all of this. See, the bottom line message that I take from this passage and from Matthew 18 is is that people who have been reconciled to God must seek reconciliation with each other. People who have been reconciled to God must seek reconciliation with each other. We don't have a choice. It makes no sense for us to receive such great forgiveness from God and then to not offer it to each other. It calls into question our very testimony. And so, as we enter into this year, as we go through this process of putting a new emphasis on discipleship, of growing together, we must remember that reconciliation is at the core of the gospel 
because brokenness is at the core of our broken world. But the solution is far more powerful than the problem because of what Christ has done for us. We are not going to do what we normally do during this time, which is to have a time of discussion at our tables. Instead, um, what, what I want to do is I want to just take some time for us all to do business with this text. I want us all to just take some time to step back and to evaluate who are we in conflict with? What brother or sister are we currently unreconciled to that we need to seek out reconciliation to? Reconciliation is something that we seek. It's not something that we can guarantee simply because it's a two-way street. You have to have two parties who are willing to reconcile. And that can be a real problem, can it? But if we have been reconciled to God, we need to seek out reconciliation with each other. We are going to do what we normally do, though, and that's to come to the table, to the Lord's Supper. And what's so interesting about this passage of 2 Corinthians 5 and the relationship that Paul had with the Corinthian church is that Paul had to give them instructions back in 1 Corinthians about this very thing because they were doing it in a way that just reflected the selfishness within their ranks where some people were just taking advantage of this meal that they would have together and they would, they would actually hoard all the food that was brought to it. They would, they would go in front of other people and meanwhile some people would leave fat and happy and other people would leave without having anything. And so Paul had to say, listen, you're, you're missing the whole point of this. Christ died for all of you, and that's what this message, that's what this meal is supposed to recall. And so for us this morning, as we consider this idea that there is no way we can completely separate out our relationships with, with each other from our relationship with God, let us remember then that our relationship with each other is also a part of this. We're eating from the same like metaphorical, symbolic loaf, the same body. We're drinking from the same blood that's represented in the juice. That's the horizontal element. And of course, it also represents that vertical element too, where we are eating of the body that was broken for us that we are drinking of the cup that represents that blood that was spilled out for us. Both of those are at play when we do this. We do this in remembrance of what Christ has done for us, and then we, we bring it into the present, though, by asking ourselves, who do I need to reconcile with? That's why in Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. So as we enter into this time, let's take a few moments before we come up and let's just evaluate who do I need to seek out reconciliation with? Who do I need to be, begin praying for and asking the Lord for an uncommon amount of mercy towards and then what actions do I need to take in order to remember that there is a bigger history behind my history with those people 
that they are immensely valuable because I see that I don't regard anyone according to the flesh as I used to. And that I am myself actually an ambassador of reconciliation. And that Christ himself is the one, my model, that I'm supposed to be following. Let's ask ourselves those questions as we come up. We are going to have um, the same kind of setup, though, where we'll, we'll have a few songs. And during that time, as you feel ready, go ahead and come up, take of the elements, and take them back to your table, and you can take them there. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, for you visitors this morning, uh, we invite you to participate in this meal. This is a meal, again, to symbolize our unity, to symbolize what Christ has done on our behalf so that we might be reconciled to him. I'd like to invite you all to stand. And I'm just going to ask for the Lord's blessing on this time, and then we'll come up to the table. Heavenly Father, um, I just want to re-emphasize how you have shown me in preparation for this sermon and in uh, delivering the sermon that this is a tall order. This is the tallest of orders that we could possibly have to try to try to bring reconciliation into our difficult relationships that we might have. Lord, it's by your grace that we can even stand here. So Lord, it's by your grace that we can go to those people who are most difficult for us to be around and reconcile with them because of what you have done on our behalf. Lord, give us this grace, I pray, and thank you, Father, for the privilege of being able to understand what you require of us, what you call us to, and what you enable us to experience by the power that you have given us through your Spirit. We thank you, Father, for this time, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.